two-week notice podcast. Yo, yo, what up, everyone? You are listening to the Two Week Notice Podcast. My name is Dana Bui, and today we are joined by the lovely, the wonderful, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hey, Dana. What up, yo? Not shit. Not shit? Just chilling. We have a great guest today. Who is it? Nathan Hattie, kid. Yeah, like the Hardy Boys. Like the, the Hardy Boys. Nathan Hardy, frontman of the band Microwave. How rad is Microwave? Microwave is the shit. Come out. Come on. That was awful. Come on. That was great. It's perfect. All right. So this is a great episode. Microwave. They just released uh, about a week ago a new song on Spotify. It is a beautiful cover of Sublime's Santeria. You're going to hear some of that cover later on. Yeah, it's so good. All the songs you're hearing on this episode. Microwave. All right, now before we get to the episode, we do have a few sponsors. The Two Week Notice Podcast is proudly brought to you by Down East Hot Cider Kid. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, oh shit. Watch the microphone. Oh, that's good cider. You're allowed to laugh. You don't have to hold it. You don't have to hold it in. (laughs) I have the pineapple flavored. It's pretty good. What about you? I have the blue slushy. It's pretty red. The can looks like the blue, like the slush puppies. Down East Hide Cider Kid is the number one hard cider in New England and the number two had cider in the United States of America. That's Straight right. out of Boston, down east, had cider kid. And then you can plug your holes by going to www.plugyourholes.com because the Two Week Notice podcast is going to hook you up, dog. Do you know what they can get? They can get uh, gauges. Uh huh. You can get stretchers. That ain't so easy, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> Plugs, tunnels, stretchers, gauges, body jewelry. The Two Week Notice Podcast is going to hook you up. I'm going to give you a 15% discount. So at that checkout page, you go in the box, and there's a code that you need. What's that code, Natty? T-W-N-P-O-D, all one word. That's right. T-W-N-P-O-D. All right. Two Week Notice Podcast. Come on. Come on. Come on. Enjoy the episode. Today on the podcast, we have Nathan Hardy of Microwave. What's up, dude? What's up? Feeling comfortable at home. It's nice to be home from tour. <laughs> Your name reminds me of uh, someone I grew up with. It sounds like a Boston name. Nathan Hardy, kid. Nathan Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the, yeah, he's English or something. <laughs> sounds so that it. makes sense. <laughs> dude, uh, what a tour, man. We should, should we just recap that real quick? I think we should. Yeah. What a special tour. Yeah, it was a great, yeah. That was the, for sure the biggest tour we've ever played. Going out the story so far, Joyce Manor, Mom Jeans, in case listeners are not aware of what the tour is. Yeah, big. I, I think I think the biggest show was like 3,800 people. No, 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 sorry, Los Angeles was like 7,500 people. That was for sure the biggest show we've played of people that were watching us. <laughs> Dude, I remember that show in particular. Uh, I mean, I watched your set. Well, all right, so there were two... 
there were two shows that I just slept through altogether. I was driving overnight, so I had ice. Yeah. But the best part of my day every day, and the reason I was on the tour was because I really just wanted to watch all four bands play every night, you know. And uh, I saw your set that night and most nights. And I remember you said, you said on the microphone, this is the most amount of people we've played in front of. Like, this is really special. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what you said. Yeah, it being in Los Angeles, too. It's like where Pure Noise, our record label, is probably like the most prominent and stuff, too. And there's a lot of like industry people and a lot of like their networking connections are like Los Angeles based. Our uh, booking agent was there. So a lot of people that kind of make your career happen or not. (laughs) It's a big deal. It's a lot of people. Los Angeles, New York and Los Angeles have that. There's always like there's always big names there, you know. Yeah. And it was yeah, it was a big show show and it was yeah and it was it was an outdoor show too so the sound is a little different from from every other night it's it's always kind of hard to mix outdoor stuff a lot different yeah you're absolutely right you know i think the the beauty of and you can tell me your thoughts the beauty of having you had the opening slot so if you show come to the show you'd see microwave first then mom jeans and joyce manor then the story so far and i learned this on my like tours with piebald when we were opening for dashboard they love the opening slots it's like you come in you give them the best of what you got because you only have so much time right so you have to mm-hmm. be really selective with that set list but there's also a lot of pressure on the flip side because you're kicking things off right you're setting the tone yeah there's for sure less pressure opening than headlining (laughs) and like playing a headlining set you're you know we'll we'll play for like an hour and 10 minutes instead of like 30 minutes we had for 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 this tour or whatnot so so it feels like a marathon too when you're playing like loud heavy songs in the middle of the set that they get you uh worked up cardio wise (laughs) you're like i better uh i better preserve some energy and not throw up But uh, yeah, no, playing a shorter set, you can, uh, you don't really have to worry about it that as much. I think playing two of four is probably the ideal slot or like playing two or three of four and two, two of three or whatnot, because that playing first also, I feel like most of the time people don't really like throw down for the first band. They're not quite ready to like mosh yet and stuff, <laughs> which, which actually that being said, I, I think this tour, it, it, it was really fun sets and stuff. Like people still uh, like brought energy early for us and stuff, which was we were very grateful for. It was the best tour I think we've ever done. <laughs> That's like amazing. the most fun yeah good good responses and good successful tour it was very special and i don't have exact numbers i could probably hit up uh dan the story so far as tour manager he, he might mm-hmm. know but i've been telling people that it was like 95 percent sold out that might even be a low ball because yeah every show was sold out except for a couple and even those maybe small handful of shows that weren't sold out there weren't many tickets left you know what i'm saying yeah and people did show up early too and I said this um, yeah. when I interviewed Kevin Lyman. I told you this when we were texting a little bit because I was worried that you weren't going to be cool with it. I always put music from the band on the episode to promote their shit and just like interlude kind of vibe. But I had Kevin Lyman on. He's not in a band. He put on Warp Tour. So I'm like, oh shit, what am I going to play for music? And it was at the beginning of that tour. I was in a hotel room in fucking Cleveland or something putting the episode together. And I was like, I want to give some love to a microwave, dude. You know, so I oh, put yeah. it out there. But during that introduction, I was just giving like a little tour recap and i was just saying how like people really are like showing love like i don't know if i've ever seen an opening band consistently get that much love on a four band bill you know usually people still walking in the door people showed up early to see microwave they knew the words they're crowd surfing um just to add to your point man you you guys got a lot of love and i know you got new fans which is that's what it's all about yeah i think it was a good tour for us probably one of the best tours for us aside from like warp tour and stuff but like i remember when when our when uh, much love our second 
record came out six months or so afterwards it, it was pretty it was a pretty slow we had the sort of like postpartum we, we were expecting we're like oh we're gonna put our record out and everything's gonna be like really big and great for us or whatever and then like very little happened and it was like a it wasn't a as exciting or uh <laughs> whatnot as we anticipated but then like a year later we did warp tour and then it, it like things started to pick up after warp tour and, and we and we saw how uh events like that can can factor into uh people hearing about your band and, and and having growth as a band and stuff i think it's all meaningful too even like you'll have people come up and be like dude i saw you in cincinnati when there were like you know 15 people there yeah all, all those little things certainly add up and sometimes even and those people who saw you that way are the people who like keep coming forever and stuff because almost exclusively because of like that story it feels like <laughs> totally. because it's like if you saw if you saw something unfold it just feels cool to be part of it or whatnot yeah absolutely um you mentioned warp tour when, when did you guys do that 2017 the last one no the one before the last one did you do the full tour that year full tour in 2017 yeah what were some highlights from that and that was your first time doing warp tour yeah yeah that was the first First time doing warp tour, only time doing warp tour. Okay. Uh it was uh it was really hot. <laughs> it was uh another like strenuous, a lot of work kind of tour, but I feel like those are the fun. I like to have some like immersive work projects from time to time with what I do, where you just like, I can't think about anything else because there's just a whole day planned of things that I have to do. And there's like, you know, they they feed you three meals a day too. That's like really delicious food. I think I gained like five pounds on warp tour at least just from like how I never eat that good when i'm at home <laughs> a full catered meal every meal and like hot dogs at night and stuff you know it's it's really fun it feels like camp it feels like an adult summer camp or whatnot it, it's like while you're on it i feel like everyone's kind of like oh man this is a lot it's hot and uncomfortable and stuff but then you get done and you're like that was pretty damn cool <laughs> this tour kind of felt like that a little bit too just because we i mean we drove i think i did the math and it was like twelve thousand five hundred miles in five weeks I had it at 11,000. But it's still, I mean, it's it's fun because of that too, because you get done, you're like, wow, we did it. Tour's over, I survived, <laughs> you know? Blink-182, of course. Going back to Warp Tour, that is a grind. That is a very, very hard tour to do. Even if you're yeah. on a bus, that's not easy. We were on a bandwagon and there was a few bands that did it in a van and I just can't. <laughs> Because they book the whole thing like that. Like they, they book it with having to drive through the night in mind. Exactly. It's just wild to do a bus tour in a van. <laughs> yeah, that's... It's, it's a wildly uncomfortable thing. And it's like worth it for like the exposure for your band and like being able to build your band and stuff. But like uh, at a certain point in like the indie music realm or whatnot, I, I feel like you, do, you just like step back and ask yourself like, are we just going to keep doing these things that are <laughs> really strenuous to get exposure or whatnot? It's just like, yeah. It's kind of fun to... To be uncomfortable too you know like i've always enjoyed i was in boy scouts and i was into backpacking and stuff and that's kind of like if you backpack like 80 miles or whatever it's not <laughs> a very comfortable thing but there is something like rewarding about that sort of like runners high or whatnot where you get just uncomfortable and then you're just sort of like the small things make you happier and stuff you know the the wawa and stuff like oh wow a wawa <laughs> Any other highlights from that that last tour? It was it was just so rad, and I mean, you guys just fucking brought it every night. It was so awesome to be a part of and and to watch. Yeah, let me think. Of the highlight, other highlights of a 
hometown show must have been rad for you Atlanta or... was a bit it was a highlight playing yeah playing at the eastern is just a big venue i actually work i do uh stagehand like uprigging work in atlanta like hanging the motors that hold up the lighting truss and speakers and stuff from the rafters cool and uh one of the companies i work with actually works at the eastern too and stuff so it was like i was like oh am i gonna see some co-workers and be able to flex you know <laughs> it, yeah no that was really it was cool playing at the eastern and it's it's a room that also sounds really great it's like brand new yeah. so uh yeah no it was definitely designed with sounding good in mind <laughs> compared to a lot of venues a lot of the i mean it was was it c cmg ceg the there was one the other company besides live nation that owns a bunch of music venues and music festivals and stuff it's i think CEG, something. i think you're right ceg yeah i think they had a contract like the story so far did for the whole tour i think all the venues were ceg venues or contracted through ceg but and they, they opened a bunch of new venues during the pandemic they like used the opportunity of everything being closed to like expand or whatnot and that was one of them was the eastern it opened up i think you know 2020 or something 21 and uh a lot of the rooms yeah they all sounded really good <laughs> too yeah the the boston cool. one roadrunner that's brand new yeah that was a sick show i really liked that venue in denver it's like a mini yeah. well not i say mini it holds four thousand people um but it's yeah. supposed to be a mini version mini indoor version of red rocks and then you had like the one in chicago radius which is also relatively new but it's just this big fucking like warehouse looking thing but that was every you know sold out what was the other one i felt like the san antonio room was kind of like that but smaller and in a texas way it's just a big room you know yeah uh we played like a block from the alamo there too yeah did you go there (laughs) i wish i would have walked over there i didn't even realize it until like when we were leaving because i remember uh Parker Cannon said during this story so far said at some point he's like this is for the Alamo or something for, <laughs> for his song That's and great. I was like oh sick the Alamo was in San Antonio and then I, I like Google Maps did in my phone and I was like oh my god we're like a block from the Alamo right now Dude, it was like right there yeah I had never been to San Antonio before either yeah no we we played there one time at like a sports bar with all get out that band from South Carolina nice yeah That's cool man and there was probably 30 people there it was like for sure the smallest show on the tour by a factor of like four at least it's like a quarter the size but it was a good show for for the source of our tour so it was it was probably still the smallest show on the stories of our tour 1200 or 1400 cat place or something yeah that sounds about right and it was sold out that was just the coolest part like not just watching the music every night but watching all you guys play in front of these sold out crowds pretty much every night can i ask you mentioned that this was you know your biggest and maybe best tour ever you guys you know you didn't have it easy either you had a fucking a van breakdown in the in the middle of it you had to two two get vans, two, two vans so i guess what i'm getting at is what were your takeaways and i don't know maybe there's something like oh you know what moving forward lesson learned there you know what I'm trying oh, to Oh man, there was a lot of, this was probably the most I ever learned on a tour for sure. But uh, I mean, for one, we switched to using a uh, quad cortexes, which is like a amp profiling floor unit um, for, for both guitars and up front and stuff. And we our, our uh, guitarist who was playing with us, Trav, left the band like a few months before the tour or whatnot. And like we uh, practiced at his house and we recorded our first two albums with him and stuff. So he was sort of like the uh, resident sound specialist or like tech specialist 
specialist for the band and stuff and like he had like previously helped with our uh, stage plot kind of setting up and stuff and since he was gone i was sort of like the next uh, i guess logical person in line to deal with this stuff so i i had to make all the guitar tones for me and greg with the quad cortexes with all like the tone switches and stuff and then i had to pay attention more to like our stage plot with the audio stuff and kind of help the sound people hook everything up because they had they had to do a whole new input list and not use the same microphones on amps and stuff so they, there was a little bit of a learning curve or whatnot so i learned I learned a good bit about how to set up live sound stuff with like the input routing everything and uh had to figure out how to streamline that and then also just merch for us was just uh we sold more merch than we we ever had by like a good margin or whatever too we we didn't order enough after the first like two shows we're like oh god we need to order for sure right now and then we ran out of merch at like the third show or whatever and then we we, we tried to like overnight print stuff where like play pay rush fees and stuff to try to have merch at, at the venue in Pittsburgh and in Cleveland and stuff. And so I was like hitting up other people that toured trying to figure out how to do rush orders on merch and everything. And then, yeah, and then we had bought a van right before the tour. It was the same kind of van as our last one. It was just like a 2002 E350 van, but it only had like 25,000 miles on it. And it was some like fleet maintained vehicle with all the records and everything. So we're like, oh, this is a good, a good investment because it was cheap, but seemed like it would have longevity. And then that, that that broke down and then we borrowed another van that was an older van that seemed to be in good shape and everything and that one broke down too it had a spark plug go out and we had to, we, we fixed that on the way to boston and barely got to boston in time uh and then we you know had to rent a box truck from newark where we borrowed the van to drive our stuff uh and ourselves to philadelphia and then like three of us were in the back of the box truck four of us <laughs> were in the back of the box truck in the dark driving the whole way then uh we rented a green vans in philadelphia they 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 helped us even though that i think they just didn't have any initially but we we're like hey we're in an emergency situation and they allowed us to use their like reserve vehicle or one that wasn't cleaned or something and uh it was just so much better we definitely learned that we're never gonna buy a van again <laughs> that we're just gonna rent green vans our last tour too last fall we had a headline tour and our old van broke down in, in the middle of that tour and and the only thing we could get where we were in uh chicago was a cruise america rv like it's like a chain rv place <laughs> yeah. so we we finished the tour in like an rv that time and that was kind of a interesting experience too it's just a real wide vehicle too so it's just like trying to drive through new york city and it and stuff was just like unreal but uh after that tour and this tour back to back and then having like that van break or having three vans break and all the things we're just like you know what we see the value in because if you if you rent a van and it breaks down then they'll they'll like drive someone out to you with a new van and stuff and they'll like replace it and come help fix it and stuff or hook you up with a new van and also just having a newer vehicle like the it was like a 2021 ford transit with like the high roof and everything it was like handling and everything it was just like we could drive like 10 miles an hour faster just as safely <laughs> and uh it had cruise control and it was just like so much smoother to drive and it was quieter because our the 4350 vans also the road noise I, I have like an app on my phone that that uh has like a db reader or whatever and it would be like 80 db in the ford van which is pretty much like a semi-loud bar <laughs> all the time just from like the road noise so like our ears would ring more from just like 
bit. We, we'd like wear earplugs if we were going to drive all day in the van because your ears would ring when you got out at the end of the night wow. from just like being in there all day. And it was so quiet in the Ford Transit van and stuff. So yeah, that was another learning takeaway was just rent a, a van. And green vans is great. And it's like got the USB plugs at each seat and all that stuff. And Oh yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Dan. Dan's a guy. He's probably who you would have interacted with when you were dealing with all that shit. We rent through them. Um, they don't even have a Boston office anymore, but I met up with the owner. He like drove one from Providence up to me. He's like, I only do this for piebald, unearth, and every time I die, you're lucky we love you, whatever. <laughs> on that trip, though, this was like just in December, we got rear-ended on the highway. I've told this story on the podcast before, but basically we got rear-ended. You know, a Mack truck hit a box truck, and the box truck hit us while we were stopped on the highway. It was pretty scary, pretty bad. It was a like gear and merch on the highway and stuff on the Jersey Turnpike, but I'm like, fuck. We had a show in Lancaster that night, a couple hours away. I called Green Vans before I called the cops, dude. I was like, Dan, yeah. Dan, Dan the man. Yo, ah, this just happened. Philly is halfway. He's like, dude, I have so much going on today. And he didn't have to help me. It's not like it's not like the van broke down, right? But um, long story short, man, he met us right off the side of the highway. We had pulled over to some some rest stop, took all our gear and shit out. Just as we were pulling the last couple of items out of the busted van, he shows up with an, a brand new green van. We still got to the show on time. Like it was just, we'll be forever loyal to green vans after they um, yeah. did that. That, you know that's the benefit there too because you don't i mean especially if you're on the road on like a tour like the one we were just on if we would have like missed the boston show even if it keeps you from missing one show like the implications of that and that's that's i guess why we learned that we're like we're just gonna rent a van from now on because like it's it's just uh especially since if you buy a van and you want to be able to afford it and not pay like sixty thousand dollars for a van it ends up being an old van that you're just gonna run the risk of having a breakdown and i i, I keep seeing like, like i feel like the theme of the last few months has been banned having their vans break down like towards the end of the story so far tour i know bad luck started their tour with taking meds and stuff and both bad luck and uh taking meds vans broke down on, on the way to like one of the first shows going out to salt lake or whatever and i think both bands or bad luck had to play acoustic in salt lake city and stuff or wait i, I can't remember exactly whose vans broke down and stuff but there was like everyone was was stuck and having to miss shows and everything and i was just like oh damn that is the worst it's like oh, it happened to us it happens to everyone else who's trying to like deal with vans or it wasn't bad luck's van that broke down it was a uh, oh god i'm i'm forgetting the other band that was on tour with them but they were sharing gear with another band whose van broke down so their gear didn't get to the show oh shit <laughs> two bands had their van break down on the way to the salt lake city show and so like the only music that was performed was uh the vocalist of bad luck with an acoustic guitar <laughs> right dominic yeah that's brutal so the only reason piebald was able to survive as long as they did this is wait like 20 years ago aaron the guitarist is a mechanic so they owned vehicles for a long time and he was a guitar player and transpo captain slash mechanic but not every band has that and they even got to the point where they um converted two or three of their vehicles to run off of vegetable oil which just became um a whole different thing me without you did it too uh, but yeah they, they were part of this like big like revolution really at the t kind of ahead of its time but yeah it we became... actually our first van was biodiesel so yeah we we had one too you did the like, same thing tyler who who plays bass in microwave owned a biodiesel van when we started and we toured in that at the beginning no way yeah we'd like make the the fuel and everything we we go to the to the vietnamese restaurant i worked at and grab their oil and go filter it and do all the pumps in his shed and stuff oh wow man that was kind of a process to try to find the oil on the road and stuff too there was like a dude in kentucky who was like a in like a grateful dead hover band or whatnot that a lot of people would refuel at and stuff who had like huge tanks of biodiesel in the 
back, but it was just like trying to find it on the road in general because you can't like really filter it on the road. Yeah. Right. I guess you just carry what you need well, with you or something. I don't know what your setup was. This is like some old school shit. They had like um in one of their vehicles, uh, the first one, it was a hundred gallon tank. Uh, actually, I had Aaron Stewart on this podcast. You should check it out because he, ta- he he literally just pretty much talks about that. You, you would really yeah. dig it. But um, he explains it better than I could. I'm not like a car guy, but they had a hundred gallon tank and this was before the laws changed. What, what year are you talking when you did it? 2014. Yeah, they did it like mid 2000s, like maybe 05 or 06 to 2008. And I want to say in 2008 or nine, the laws changed because the government like became privy to it. So they they realized like people would drive, probably would drive coast to coast for like $20, you know? They stepped in and changed the laws. And so I don't know what happened after that, but they would just go to restaurants and fill up the tank. At one point they had a 200 gallon tank. <laughs> Which is like insane. You drive across the country, you know? But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they would just find restaurants. And basically the way Aaron explained it to me was, I guess once that grease hits the tank, if you pull from that tank, you're technically stealing because it belongs to the company who is picking up the grease. Because yeah. before that, before like um, they realized that it could be used for, you know, like, like a biodiesel engine or something, they really just use it for like Alpo, for like dog food and stuff. So nobody really cared or thought about it. But bands like a pie bald or a me without you or whatever like they would um have to go off the beaten path they called it liquid gold man they would just like they would get like they would opening up grease traps in the middle of the night at times just sneaking um, around <laughs> yeah they usually got permission from restaurant owners and restaurant owners were so stoked because they thought it was awesome and it saved them money because they had to pay to get it picked up anyway right yeah so that's cool that you guys oh yeah i mean this could be a whole separate like conversation too yeah. but but yeah um, so you, you would go to where was it you said kansas or kentucky uh, or, or the the one spot that we found on Craigslist where we could actually get some more biodiesel fuel was uh, a spot in Kentucky, and it was some dude that played in like a Grateful Dead cover band. But he actually like it was his main source of income and stuff. I guess uh, Grateful Dead is a big enough band that even if you play in a cover band, <laughs> they they like play in like Chicago <laughs> once a month or like once every month or two, and like if like a handful of cities or whatnot. And apparently they play to like you know a thousand people or whatever who who were down to just come see a cover of, of Grateful Dead even. That's great. Yeah. But I do know that, now I didn't tour with them at this time, but I know that the van always smelled like french fries and they'd be like yeah. dead fish and shit. Egg like rolls. When they, yeah, so I know that, you asked about the, the filter. I know that they had some sort of filtration system on the bus. And one thing that Aaron pointed out that I didn't even think of until afterward, he was just like, you know how we got rear-ended? Like the one, the story I just told you getting rear-ended? Yeah. He's like, dude, imagine if we had a 100 or 200 gallon tank of hot fucking green in the back how bad that would have been which is why i guess it's not safe but i didn't i didn't think of that dude i, I yeah that that's wild that they would filter the stuff on the bus because that is like a process like that's like a multi-step process oh yeah it's like you filter it and i think you like heated it up or something too to like yeah. remove other impurities or something we yep. like we did that all in the shed i mean we were in a like a 4350 van again like a e350 diesel van or whatever but i i guess if you're in a bus you would have room i think i saw me without used bus one time they had that for a while they were touring the bus for a while yeah man yeah. well let's go back dude nathan um i don't know if you're from atlanta proper so maybe talk just a little bit about that and yeah. transition into how you got into music and 
general. Yeah, I grew up in Marietta, Georgia, which is like 25, 30 minutes north of Atlanta and uh, got into music real young, like when I was like nine or 10. I remember the first the first uh, bands I got into were like Limp Bizkit and Lincoln Park when they were on 99X on the radio. And uh, I went through the full like Puddle of Mud, Smile Empty Soul, Taproot, 12 Stones. Like I went through a lot of uh, <laughs> rock music before I got anywhere near the realm of like I was introduced to like brand new and taking back Sunday and AFI and stuff when I was around like eighth grade or so when I was like 13 14 and then Wait, uh how old do you do I'm 31 now 31 so you would have been born in what like 91 or something 91 yeah okay cool go ahead so uh i don't know what year it would have been for taking back sunny and stuff but it was about when like bright eyes was really popping off at that time and everything but i remember i started to hang out at a swayze's which is like an all-ages venue in marietta georgia and that was sort of like the spot where people would just go and hang out in the parking lot and not even go into the show on like friday and saturday nights it was sort of like the mall or the movie theater or something just like a meetup spot so that was just like the social spot but the bands that were big there were for sure like you know, brand new and taking back Sunday, a day to remember type stuff and everything. And also people were really into uh, like agoraphobic nosebleed and like heavy, uh, <laughs> like weird uh, sludge grindcore stuff and everything. But um, my whole teen years, I, I went through bands really fast. Like one year was into mindless self-indulgence and the next year was into every time I die. <laughs> a few of the dudes who I hung out with were just like on the internet all the time looking at new bands and stuff. And they they'd get into something and then like three months later they'd be like oh no that's lame now like and i would i would latch on to bands a little bit longer and they'd be like oh they moved on really fast from like the fall of troy and every time i die and stuff because like soon after every time i die was had like popped off you know everyone got really into like rain supreme and trapped under ice and like hardcore stuff so it was just like oh this is more like i don't know masculine <laughs> i don't know what the dynamic change was but it felt like it was like cooler or something i still loved every time i die and never stop but yeah no just uh grew up going to the all ages venue all the time and listening to all sorts of music i was really into hip-hop too like a outcast and tribe called quest and stuff so since i was in like oh, yeah. fourth grade I, I got into that around the same time that i got into like rock music and stuff now Outcast too. is the best yeah i grew up on hip-hop man yeah. like until high school i only listened to rap i think it's important man yeah have you seen outcast they're from atlanta right yeah no i've seen them a few times no way i've, I've seen I've them at like the outcast day they did here a few years ago at the park at centennial olympic park oh i want to see them so bad i know andre 3000 he doesn't like the tour yeah i don't think he likes to do music in general anymore you know he stopped uh he stopped making music when he was 28 their last album idol wild and he, he's talked about it he's like you know you gotta try to find the words the songs and it's just all like so stressful and I, I didn't I didn't like imagining myself as like as I got older like still trying to find the words for the songs and stuff so he's like you know I, I just decided that I was gonna stop at the peak he was just like we're at the peak of our fame and I'm just gonna like bow out Dude. <laughs> which is a you know that's a that's a that's a move I guess a discouraging way. of a move too if you're a musician too because you, it puts that it instills that like doubt in your head or whatever <laughs> but uh it's wild to me you know they they won the Grammy when they were like 26 and then within like two years they put out like one more album that was like an album movie or whatever and then he was just completely like i'm done and it's like what you could like anything you put out would sell so much regardless of like whatever it is and people want to hear it so bad but it's like i don't know outcast has always been different though and they've always done things their own way so yeah. it's kind of fitting for them i feel you know and then he he's also a great actor he's in like movies and stuff but yeah i know big boy still likes him he still does festivals and stuff so you know he's down yeah 
Sister Andre, I think, but I'd, I'd yeah. love to catch catch them sometime. But what were you saying? Yeah. No, I, I cut you off there. I was talking about growing up, I guess. When I was around like 18 or like a senior in high school, 17 or 18, I got really into Manchester Orchestra Hell and yeah. uh, brand new Evelyn God came out. It just clicked for me immediately. I was like, this is the greatest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> for me, it goes like piebald and then like brand new. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, they're, everything they put out is... And same, same for me, the first, the first like uh, three Manchester Orchestra records and the Bad Books record too, which I feel like is like a Manchester Orchestra record almost too. <laughs> featuring uh heaven divine or whatnot yeah but uh did you see them they yeah. toured together i caught they saw them at in boston uh, maybe oh six it was brand new in manchester orchestra yeah that was a yeah no show. it was oh nine i think i was living in salt lake city at the time and i went to the show and there was just a sign on the door that said it was canceled it was like before they would get the word out via instagram and stuff as much so there was a bunch of people who came from like idaho and stuff and it said yeah. like oh someone from brand new is sick or something on the door and that was just like there's a note on the door and a bunch of people were just like walking up and leaving. It was like, oh, damn. <laughs> Brutal. When did you pick up a guitar? I got a guitar for Christmas in fifth grade. So I was like 10. And uh, I never really took lessons or I did for like three months. And my mom plays nylon strings and like has never used a guitar pick or anything. Wow. So she taught me, you know, the first like A chord, E chord kind of stuff. That's rad. Um, I just immediately went on the internet and got tabs and learned all, you know, Rage Against the Machine and Creed. And uh, yeah, <laughs> when I was 10 and then just kept playing. I actually taught guitar lessons from when I was like 16 to 18 after I had a car and could drive. And I, I at one point I had like 10 or 15 students. So I taught guitar lessons through high school. I was probably better at guitar then. I don't know. <laughs> no, but I just was more into like just playing guitar all the time or whatever. Uh, and trying to do shreddy things and stuff. But uh, I started playing guitar a lot, like pretty much the second I got a guitar. I was just like, this is the thing that I want to do. I also wanted to be in a band really since I was like 10. The first time I played in a band with people, I was like 11 years old. And it was like, we never even really recorded anything until I was like 15 or so. And it was all really bad. <laughs> like really cringily bad. I see bands like uh, knocked loose and stuff where they're like, they're already doing well when they're like six. 16 or 17 or whatever and their music's like pretty respectable and I'm like oh my god the music I was making when I was 16 was like I just took out a rhyming dictionary and said like every big word for the lyrics and stuff <laughs> and it was just completely like weird and meaningless and just like trying to figure out how do people write songs do you have a first song that you you wrote that you knew was like something good that wasn't just looking at the dictionary and just I don't know we mentioned snowboarding right I, I can still remember the day when I stopped falling and like something just clicked in my head and I learned how to make those turns and like oh, do you remember that moment for you at all? Honestly it was probably with microwave <laughs> it was definitely with microwave because the first microwave EP even is is like definitely less quality and refined than I, I mean at first Hito wouldn't, wouldn't use a click track and stuff when we played like to record even so it was like a very punk raw recording and everything and we just like you know I think we paid like $600 for six songs or whatnot. 
and uh the guy didn't have much time to w- work with it as much you know <laughs> but even the first microwave ep was like way lower uh tier i think than the very next songs that we wrote i think the first time was honestly with songs that are on our for our first album stovewall because we, we we put out three songs we put out grass stains labor day and fever from stovewall on like a just like a little ep single kind of thing at first and then we like went back and added harmonies and recorded seven other songs and, and put out the album but uh really around, yeah around the time we were doing stove i was like 22 and that was the first time i spent so much time playing like real cringy bad music i mean i had a big break between when i was like 18 and 21 because i moved out west and i was a mormon missionary and stuff and i went to byu which is another wild <laughs> yeah. caveat of my story wow. or life or whatever but yeah no i i played in bands from like 12 years old or whatever to 18 years old and then had like a three-year hiatus and then came back and then like was like oh i'll try playing music again the first ep was songs that i had written as a mormon missionary i was writing like fictional storylines i was into d theater real hard at the time too and i was like oh this is cool they have this concept where there's like a guy in the military and everything and it's it's clearly like a fictional sort of narrative or whatnot and it still kind of comes off as thematic elements that are still like you can make a connection with and everything and that that was a cool concept to me so i was like oh, I'll, I'll do that first because i didn't really i didn't want to write songs about my life because i knew my parents would listen to it and i was mormon <laughs> and i was like what am i gonna say like you know went to church today because <laughs> you can't really write about girls or anything either you're not supposed to like you know yeah but no the first time the first songs that were even remotely like acceptable were on our album Stovall. in my opinion like i would never i sort of have a weird thing anyways with like especially since the time of Stovall, i, I spend so much time working on writing the songs and, and recording them and whatnot i'm very involved with that to where when the song is like finished and we're going to submit it i can never listen to it again so like to me everything everything we've ever had i don't actually like have a moment where i'm like oh i i really appreciate this and stuff i i just like i get to a point where i'm like this is the best i could have done and i know for sure that i couldn't have made this any better which is kind of like a, a lot of way to put on yourself maybe like a big stressor but yeah no for sure everything when i was like in high school and stuff was i don't even know like i i've sort of had the realization now that you know when you, you write music with uh people listening to it in mind to a certain extent there's a quote from kanye from an interview with uh the guy from bbc I can't remember the the UK dude I'm forgetting his name but 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 he says that when he like approaches making music he imagines like uh he's like people go to the beach in their car and they're like oh you got the beer and the cooler and like the towels and stuff you got the music the music is part of like a thing where it's like it's, it's like an essential part of people's like living experiences and stuff and it like it can really be like the soundtrack to someone's like really good weekend and stuff you know when you put on like sugar ray when it's over or something you know just like like it like there's a vibe immediately and stuff and it's just like we're having a good time now and and that uh i don't know clicks for me in high school is just like really sort of throwing shit at the wall i threw shit at the wall for a long time 
And then I was going to say before too, uh, Manchester Orchestra was like a really big band for me when I was like 18 or 17 or whatever, because we have like a, me and Andy Hole have like a somewhat similar upbringing. I think his dad was like a pastor of like a Protestant church around Atlanta and I was like Mormon and stuff. So I grew up, I learned how to sing at church. We sang every Sunday and stuff and more than that, for sure. <laughs> There's like an inflection to how he sings and stuff that immediately resonated with me me as being like a this is kind of the way that I sing too because I feel like a lot of people that have like that make soul influenced music or whatever there's like a heavy church gospel element to it of like you know you can sing about Jesus you can sing about your girl that you love or whatever and you kind of like sing about each of them the same way kind of vibe but uh there was something about him that he was just from like north of Atlanta from like the suburbs and stuff from like the same area that I was from and he had a similar upbringing and he was the songs just like hit and I was like, this is more the kind of things that I would like the lyrics even and stuff. It was like there was like a vague sort of Christian influence to it and everything. But it was like still not a Christian band or whatever. That sort of got the seed planted in me when I was 18. And I think I like stewed on that for the next like three years because I knew I mean, I, I was also really at the same time, like most of my friends did not like Manchester Orchestra because at that time, like everyone that I hung out with was into like punk and hardcore stuff and like pretty much exclusively music that had screaming in it. Converge too. I'm a very big Converge fan, super fan since yeah, I was like 14. I've had Kurt on here, man. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's uh, Sick. I put him on the Mount Rushmore for hardcore music. I think you have to, especially if you factor in God City Studio and just what he's done. I didn't know. I learned on this tour that he did one of Joyce Manor's records. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I had no idea. Um, the the one that has Big Lie on it. I'm bad no, with the names. No, well, they have a brand new one. Yeah. It came out in 2017 or 18, I believe. And um, I I have the record. It's a picture of them like someone's holding up a snare drum and they're all just like smiling. It's just like that's the cover of the record is just like a picture. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's that uh, one. A thousand dollars to kill me. I ding 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 thank you yes yeah, that's yeah, the one. yeah yeah thank you i've always been a fan of stuff that like is produced in interesting ways and stuff and just has like a sound to it i think that's why it was not a natural thing for me to start learning how to like write lyrics for songwriting and stuff initially because like i for sure never wanted to like sing in a band really i, I just couldn't find anyone to sing that i thought would like put in the time to like write songs and make it good or whatever but uh i had been wanting to go to school for like recording engineering and stuff and just like produce music and make stuff sound cool and everything but i mean this uh converge albums just sound so cool like a lot of people in like the, the heavy metal punk world or whatever are like oh this is overproduced or, or whatnot referring to a lot of bands and i always think of kurt because he, he had a song exploder podcast too for uh that song dark horse and he was talking about how he like he did like eight guitar tracks redubs and everything and it's like converge sounds so cool and it, it's not overproduced it's just like produced well and it's like there's no such thing as like overproduced there's just produced in a way that's well like that's done well and it's like impactful and stuff and then there's ways that like it doesn't quite capture the vibe or whatever which which happens a lot of times with when, when people think of it being like overly polished and stuff he clearly was really intentional about like his like drum sounds and everything i love converge it's just like the heaviest most high energy recordings i can think of my friend group when i was 18 and stuff was definitely all in the heavy stuff i sort of went off my own thing being into manchester orchestra 
orchestra and even like brand new and stuff by that point. You know, talking to you is cool. That's why I love these conversations. I mean, I watched you play every night for a month or whatever, right? And I wouldn't have put two and two together myself. I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. But when you talk about how much you love Manchester Orchestra, I can yeah. literally hear that in your voice when I'm yeah. thinking back and watching I, you play. Your voice does sound... Oh, what's the singer of Manchester Orchestra's name? I can't... Andy Hall. Uh, thank you. Your voice kind of sounds like him at times. I don't know if that's intentional or not. That uh, Mean Everything to Nothing record came out, which is still probably my favorite of Manchester's or whatever. And I like learned how to play the songs and I sang them and stuff. And like the first time I sang through the songs, that was part of why it was like an awakening experience for me because we, we even have like a similar range almost and stuff sometimes. But it was like I was already singing in like a similar way. But the band that I was playing in, we were influenced by like Reggie and the full effect and like Chiodos and like uh, other stuff where the tone of the music hadn't reached that sort of like indie. I don't want to say Americana or whatever or like classic grunge indie rock sound or whatever that Manchester touched on. And I was also the biggest Nirvana fan ever, like super Nirvana fan. That was like one of the first bands I ever just like geeked out on when I was like eight or nine years old or, or I don't know, nine, ten. So like when I heard them in Brand New and stuff, it just felt to me like this is what Kurt Cobain would have done if he kept not not so much Manchester as Brand New, maybe. But yeah, with Manchester, I, I started to play their songs and cover them. And people would be like, it was like my voice sounded better when I was covering Manchester Orchestra songs than when I played like my own songs at the time and stuff. And people were like, oh, play more Manchester Orchestra's covers. <laughs> and I was just like, I can really sing like the dude in Manchester Orchestra if I want to. That sort of stuck with me. And it was hard to break out of too. After we, after we did Stovall, I remember thinking like, my band just kind of sounds like a worse version of Manchester Orchestra. And I was like, I got to really sort of, I got to reach out and like, and there's a lot of bands that you hear it and you're like, oh, this sounds like a kind of like a worse version of this other band that I like. Because people obviously like derive influence from other bands and stuff. You can hear it really clearly a lot of the time, but it's like, I didn't want to be like a band that was obviously influenced by another band and didn't have anything like new or different to like offer to the conversation musically or whatever. So that was sort of like our process after Stovall of self-discovery of going into much love and everything, trying to do something where it's like, oh, this doesn't sound like something Manchester Orchestra would have done. <laughs> no, but that was like a big turning identity band for me where I was like, found my voice of how to sing, I think, or like the sort of range. Um, you guys are so good, man. You yeah. still have time for like a few more questions and stuff? Sure. Yeah, no problem. I'm just chilling. I'm not doing anything else tonight. Okay, cool. <laughs> One day I had an unearthed shirt on and you were like, unearthed, I like that band. And you told me about a festival that you did with them. So maybe talk about that and just festivals in general. I just like hearing festival stories. Yeah, we played Arafest in 2018 or 17, beginning of 2017. For one, the promoter just, I don't even know if promoters have like insurance or something, but this dude just lost his ass, I'm sure, like financially. The most there was during the day was probably 250 people-ish. And it was hard to even tell because there were so many bands that played. Unearth, Zeo, Oh Sleeper, He Is Legend, Dark Sermon, I Set My Friends on Fire, Tides of Man, Artifacts, Creo, Vatican played, and we played. But yeah, just Unearth, Zeo, Oh Sleeper, He Is Legend even. I'm like, 
like all those bands, you know, I think they were paying us like a thousand dollars or something or fifteen hundred dollars or something. And we're like a smaller band on that bill. It's like, man, you must be paying these bands. Like your overhead must have been so much. And it was twenty five dollars for a ticket. And there's, you know, maybe two hundred people paid or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> twenty five bucks. Dude, I would pay more than that to see one of those bands. Right. I mean, yeah. most people would. Wow. But it was it was a cool kind of experience because of that. We chilled with the I set my friends on fire for a bit. I had listened to them in high school and stuff. They're really cool. We got to chill with O Sleeper a little bit too, which O Sleeper is a, was a band for me along with like As Cities Burn and stuff. That one, the uh, When I Am God or, or whatnot record with like uh, We Are the Archers and Vices like Vipers and stuff. This is one of the sickest records I've ever heard. The O Sleeper record. That was a big record for me. But uh, yeah, that was a wild festival though. Any idea why people didn't show up and what was the capacity? It must have been thousands. It's probably like a thousand or fifteen hundred, but it was outdoor and it was in like a pavilion at a park that they would probably have like a wedding at or something maybe. So it's kind of hard to say. I guess if they like put people outside of the pavilion and stuff like back up a ways, they could have fit more people probably. So, but it seemed like under the pavilion was like maybe a thousand or so. Yeah. I wonder why it flopped. Weird. Yeah. I think they may have just discovered that the scene wasn't there in Savannah as much. It's such a weird place in Savannah because a lot of the population of people that would go to shows and stuff are at SCAD at the college there. And, you know, they switch out like less than four years because, you know, it's like $100,000 a semester or something. Oh. SCAD is like one of the most expensive schools ever. And I think they have a really high like first year dropout rate because people are just like, why am I paying so much for an art degree? <laughs> I had played in Savannah. Like that was always one of the places outside of Atlanta that we've done well was like down there in Savannah. But there was a time period where there was just like a lot of people that went to college there that were really into that like southern midwest emo thing like free throw and you blew it and dikembe and like the world is a beautiful place and like uh empire empire when we first started playing shows and touring those were the bands that we were playing with at like houses and stuff and, and the, you know our first tour that we did was you blew it and sorority noise before sorority noise took off you blew it was headlining but yeah no so when we when we would play in savannah we'd play at like the pizza place downstairs and stuff but it would be like a sold out you know 200 kids kind of thing and it would be a 150 kids or whatever you know and, and it would be like a really hype fun show so for us it was like felt like it was a big place but then I guess that that show by like 2017 or whatever we had been playing there like maybe three years before two and a half years before but I mean even two or three years in Savannah like everyone who came to the show we played at the pizza place didn't live there anymore <laughs> I think that was one of the last shows because that, that guy who booked the show, I wish I could remember his name because I he's booked other shows for us I believe and he's like a well-known guy in the scene in that area that may have been one of the last shows that they did from this genre in Savannah. We don't, I don't really see bands play there as much anymore. Dude, um, you mentioned Dikembe. I first saw them at the Fest in Gainesville, Florida. Have you guys ever done that? You would fit in perfectly. We're doing it this year, Piebald. We did it one year and it was really sick. It was like really great. They just haven't invited us back. I don't know why. A couple of the last few years since then, we were on a, another tour that like directly conflicted and was at the same time and stuff. But there's been one or two times that we were totally available to play it and we even hit up our manager and stuff like, hey, can we, you know, arrange the fest thing? Yeah, I mean, you're right there too. <laughs> it's four and a half hours or something, five hours. Yeah. Yeah. You guys would be great there. Yeah, no, I'd like to play there again. It's really fun too. They may have not invited us back because the first time everyone got so drunk, honestly. <laughs> but I feel like everyone gets drunk at fest. Yeah, dude. But I mean, 
that was like a, it especially like there was wild story because everyone's girlfriend came or now wife for Tyler and stuff and they all got like really drunk too and I just remember people like crying and stuff I don't even remember <laughs> <laughs> to your point of partying when five all did it we all got wasted <laughs> I would love to play fest again we are going to be on tour right during fest again this year or, I mean I guess that's why they do it at that time is because people will tour and do it like south by southwest and stuff right but uh we're gonna be on a tour at that time one that, that you, you can't same. talk about yet is that correct yeah no i can all right you have to cut this part or do you want me to say it or do you want me uh, to i'll cut it out but i think it's and yeah. When is that being announced, you know? No, I don't know. Okay. I would like to put the episode out soon, but I also like to align it with, like, if you have a new song coming out soon, I could do it with that or something. You know what I mean? Just yeah. Something, something to think about. But if not, it's all good. We're uh, going to have a song on the Pure Noise covers PBR compilation. We, we did a Sublime Santeria. We mentioned Pure Noise Records. When did you guys sign with Pure Noise? We signed with Pure Noise in 2018 or the beginning of 2019. We put out our single Keeping Up with Georgia on My Mind cover. I love that cover. We, we were on Side One Records. Which I, was Piebald on Side One Records too? Yeah. Yes. I think so. Piebald yeah. was. You are correct. Yeah. We were on Side One and then they announced to us that it was just going to be the two owners working and they had, they were not going to have staff anymore and they were pretty much going to like sell their catalog and then outsource everything if they released any new records. I mean, the more you learn about it, like we'll see them break down like the record label things when they discuss things like recouping the cost for your record because they're, they're not just recouping like the amount of money that they gave you for your recording budget. They have like, you know, another $80,000 in things that they six to eight grand for a PR campaign and like I don't even know all the things that they pay for the vinyl up front and everything but I mean if you just got like a bank loan and stuff you could do a lot of that stuff hire Jamie Coletta to do PR for you but uh it's hard to say though because because the big thing now is people will have like Spotify playlisting connections and stuff we've always been a band that has not been easy to pitch for Spotify playlist stuff it's one of those I don't know maybe doing like that Georgia cover could be a thing or like Pieball did a Christmas album a couple years ago and one of those songs ended up on some Christmas playlist fucking thing and like that song blew up for half a second. I wanted to ask you actually about so the way you release songs right because a lot of bands they're not just putting out albums anymore right you have to adapt with the times there's so many bands now that just put out they'll just drop a song here and there so you guys like you drop your newest song um, Straw Hat is really rad. I love you because it's
That just came out very recently. And then, what, maybe a few months before that, you dropped Circling the Drain. I guess this is just a multi-part question and, and just trying to open up the conversation particular to what is the best strategy with that these days? Do you plan on just maybe just keep doing something like that leading up to a full record or or what? I'm not sure, to be honest. We really pushed to finish circling the drain and, and, and be able to re release it in time for the Story So Far tour so we'd have new music for the tour. I think that was actually part of the premise that they let us open the tour is that we said we would have new music by then. <laughs> But uh, you're like, all right, we'll give you one. <laughs> we literally turned that song in like a week, the Friday before the tour started or something like we drove off like four days later. Yeah, we've been working on music and stuff, but we were just trying to get some because our last album came out in 2019. So we're all, we're at two and a half years right now. It came out like the end of the year or whatever. But uh, yeah, no, I was also just really needing to get some music out. I don't even know if we did the ideal strategy or whatnot. I always go back and forth on wanting to be like strategic with music and stuff because i feel like to an extent also at, at this point the biggest thing that makes things take off is just people organically share it if they're really into it or whatever on on twitter and whatnot but i know that's not everything because like there's a reason why labels hire people that strategize the hell out of things and there's a reason why some bands just blow up really fast you see things like a like jack harlow and stuff i don't know if you if you're familiar with jack harlow but he's like a hip-hop guy that he just like out of nowhere he was on the front cover of every magazine and stuff <laughs> I think there's a balance. And I think about this stuff since I took over the piebald Instagram. I make content and I just notice things like if I post something in the evening versus, you know, 10 a.m. Because you can look at the business analytics. You can you can literally yeah. see like the how many accounts you've reached and all those numbers and, and like all that data is very interesting to me. But at the same time, I, I'm just like, I just love this music. Why can't everybody love it the way I love it? And I just want everybody yeah. to give it a chance. <laughs> You know. Yeah, I always think also about how brand new stopped doing music videos after uh, Deja and Tendu. There's no music videos after uh, Quiet Things That No One Ever Knows, which honestly isn't a, like a super great music video. <laughs> and honestly, for this like realm of music, like every sort of like indie punk band or whatnot, it's really hard to get a good music video because it's like, do you do like live performance shots? Usually, yes. And like, it's so hard to do live performance shots and have it feel like interesting or fresh or whatnot or like match the music but especially when you're when you're in this realm of like emotive music or whatnot like the same way that brand new is it's like how do you capture it's not very like syncable it's not very likely to ever be put in a movie or something it requires too much attention to listen to or something this also makes me think of the thing i was saying about kanye's like you have your music to go to the beach and everything where it's like a product in a way like the style of music that we play is like the least conscious of that <laughs> <laughs> of that concept and, and i think brand new would be too uh 
I think you're right because you're not writing like these catchy hooks. Is that what you mean? The hooks or also I feel like Radiohead is also syncable or like you could use the instrumental beats and there's elements of different bands that like if you just like took the beat, it's like, oh, this is like a whole vibe and stuff. But like uh, this realm of like indie, yeah, indie punk stuff, it's pushed into like more of a niche realm. I mean, in general, they say like music this isn't like entirely true in the literal sense but in essence in the past there was like a few big artists and now there's tons of medium-sized artists or whatever because like everyone has like an easier more accessible platform for finding people and everything and the tools to find people more effectively and stuff but that just means there's so many like niche bands of genres that are even like adjacent to this genre and stuff like things like Mets and Piss Jeans and stuff where there's like a lot of crossover there's just like a lot of medium-sized yeah R&B artists and stuff stuff too i don't know how to gauge these things anymore because people aren't buying albums right and people aren't really making music videos anymore so with piebald obviously we'll never be this massive massive thing but at the same time i still want to get the word out there the best i can so we look at spotify numbers and i'm looking at that the monthly it's like 30 35,000 maybe i look at i got yours right here 260,000. you got a quarter of a million fucking yeah. listeners that's amazing and every yeah. band on this tour has that or more right i mean how do i get that maybe with piebald it's just they're like a nostalgia band and and they're also not full-time you know you have to be continuing yeah. to put out music and stuff but just as an example how did that happen how did you get two hundred sixty thousand uh monthly listeners any idea no I mean, I, I mean, I, I watched the process of it happening. I'll recap it for you here. Before Much Love came out, which was our second record, we were right at around like 40 to 50,000 monthly listeners. And then after Much Love came out, a few months later, we were at like 60 to 70,000 monthly listeners. And then after Warped Tour, which would be like an entire year later, like the next fall, it was up to like 150,000. And then I kind of forget after that. It's been at about 230,000 for the last like three or four years no you're at 260 right now yeah no it's, it's it's up because we put out the new songs or whatever so there's like people listening to the new song okay another funny like wild thing with spotify numbers because you want to know if it's like a useful metric for determining like how many people would come see a band at a show and stuff totally but there's so especially with like heavy music it is weird to see bands that are heavier that are big and will play to like 2,000 people like knock loose and stuff the spotify monthly listeners aren't as much as it almost seems like people People aren't listening to heavy music as much like the fans don't listen to music as much it's oriented for sure around like the shows because it's so fun to see live and to like engage with live and, and mosh and shit but like uh bands like every time i die and stuff too the spotify monthly listeners are surprising when you look at how many people really engage with the music and listen to it and stuff but dude also to your point it's hard to gauge because maybe fans of every time i die or fucking a piebald or a band that's a bit older maybe they're listening to the record player or maybe they're listening yeah. to itunes or, or cds uh, you know i don't know i really don't yeah every time i die right now is at two hundred and forty thousand. that's what i'm saying that band is like at least five times the size of microwave that's a prime example of how the spotify thing can like not even be like a valid it's like i guess people just have the record for some like some and i bet every time i die is probably a band that's like that like there's this scene this specifically our realm of of music got really into vinyl and i bet a lot of them do just listen to vinyl 
vinyl and stuff. Yeah. And then there's also people who know those songs and will always be like super into that band and always go to their shows. So their ticket sales might always be bigger, but maybe they're listening to new music or newer music and discovering a band like a microwave. You know, there's that yeah. too. And also there's the element of you guys, you're putting out new songs. There's so many factors and it is yeah. really hard to gauge like how to use that tool of Spotify, for example, right? Or, or the best, or, the or best it. way. To gauge yeah. band size anyways. <laughs> totally. But it's yeah. just interesting. That's for damn sure. Well, um, dude, so I did a little bit of homework. You guys played with Jimmy Eat World? We did. Do it sort of yeah, talk about that, man. I love that band. It was great. Hotelier played too, which is another great band. I think they're also from Massachusetts. It was like 11 shows or something. It was like a, a leg of a tour. And it was cool. We didn't get to hang out a whole lot with them, obviously, because they're like a giant band. They were on a bus and stuff. And they've toured so much and have way too many friends at this point. <laughs> they did come chill a few times. And they were really cool with all the interactions we had with them i mean that's a big deal like um but they were yeah no that was definitely one of my favorite bands growing up and stuff that was one of the things that we did that afterwards i was like ah, even if we like break up tomorrow and don't do anything else like i'll, I'll at least be able to like get old and be like i used to play in a band and we toured with jimmy world <laughs> absolutely man. you know that and like warp tour and stuff where like even if you just say that people are like oh jimmy world Warp tour motion city soundtrack was another one yeah that was probably one of the pinnacles of my life uh justin's wife told me at our Arizona show too that he had showed her microwave at some point like a year or two prior and was like oh I know you usually don't like music with screaming but I think you're really gonna like this and he was like into it and she gave me a really like sweet nice compliment that was probably one of the pinnacles of my life it was like oh my god the singer of Motion City soundtrack sincerely was stoked on my music <laughs> that's so rad that's probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to me that's yeah. really cool can I ask you about you've toured abroad right like festivals and stuff like in Europe? Yeah, a few times. Any highlights? Some of your favorite spots you've been to, you know, outside the country? First tour we did was with Real Friends and Can't Swim over there. And that was Europe and UK. We met Can't Swim, which we've toured with them now like five times. <laughs> Literally, maybe six. And uh, then we came back with Creeper, which is like a band that's really big in the UK. Like there was like 2000 cap plus rooms and stuff. And they had like wild production with a face that shot lasers and stuff behind them. And they're pretty cool. Yeah, that was sick. Again with Can't Swim actually on that tour. <laughs> we toured with Tiny Moving Parts there also in Europe and UK. And that was a really fun tour. We played Ireland, which was really cool. Went across over there in the ferry. Then we, and, uh, we ended in Milan, Italy. And then Tito and I, went to uh, Rome and went to the, to the Vatican and we went to Naples and like Capri, like the island off of Naples. Nice, dude. For like a week and a half after the tour. And that was a pretty sick vacation. Dude, a week and a half? We were like, we're there and the, the plane ticket is already being paid for for this trip. So let's just use the, yeah, it's pretty cheap in Italy too once you're there. Totally. I think most of the Airbnbs were like $80 USD and we were like splitting it six or seven ways or something. Or maybe $100. Capri was sick. We did like boat tours. It's a tiny island. It's pretty sick. <laughs> Italy was fun. Seeing all the stuff in Rome was cool with the Coliseum and stuff. I'll also say Scotland is all, always really tight too. It's sort of like the shows in Boston or whatnot. Like there's like a special like people try to turn up and instead of uh, one more song, they say one more tune, one more tune. The only place on earth where the encore is one more tune. In the US, Boston is a top place. Like you were saying, other people had said just like the shows are always really great there. Uh, like more people than other places. It's pretty much the on par 
with Atlanta for us, like the hometown show. Wow. Chicago is usually pretty sick too. I love another, Chicago. Another top spot. Yeah. I mean, as far as the shows, yeah. Denver, Colorado is always really good for us. We have a good time in Denver all the time. Salt Lake City this time was a was for the first time. I always expected Salt Lake City to be like a spot for us with my Mormon past or whatever. And it never has. I mean, we've always had cool, great shows there and stuff. But it went, like, as far as like how many people come to shows and stuff, it was just like a smaller market for us or whatever. But this it was actually one of the best shows for us on this tour, the very first one. And we were like, oh, sick. <laughs> you guys ripped, man. Goosebumps. Like, all right, this is this is how we're going to kick off this tour, you know. And I don't know how much or or if you want to get into it at all. But, like, do you want to talk about the Mormon thing at all? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Wait, what, what about it? I don't know, dude. I don't. I don't know anything about it. Like, um, I guess it was kind of a vague thing to ask. I grew up uh, in the church. Went to seminary every morning in high school. Like, we would go to church before we went to school in high school at like six thirty in the morning. I'm sorry. Where were you at that time? In Marietta, Georgia. Okay. So okay. most of my friends growing up like weren't Mormon, which is kind of a different Mormon experience than if you grow up in like Utah or Arizona or Idaho or even like California to an extent. Right. I didn't but, even know uh, that was a thing. Like in Atlanta. It's not really. There's Mormons everywhere, like all over the world now and stuff, even in like, you know, South America and Japan and stuff. It's a way different experience when you're like this, like very small minority of people in a place that's usually not Mormon. Like you don't really get the full experience of Mormon culture, which I did when I went out to Utah and when I went to BYU for a semester and a half. And then I, I was a Mormon missionary, <laughs> went on a Mormon mission in uh, Washington State, in Vancouver, Washington, in Eastern Washington, in uh, like Richland and Kennewick and stuff. So that was uh, like later in life, obviously, right? Yeah, it was 19 to 21. Please forgive me, dude. I don't know much about, I'm not religious really, so I don't really know. Did you decide to become a Mormon at a certain point? or No, my parents were Mormon. And my mom is from California and my dad's from Arizona. So they were from areas where they grew up, like surrounded by Mormons. Which when you're surrounded by Mormons, then like more of your friends are Mormons. So it's easier to like be completely separated from the world and like a bubble of it. They don't watch R-rated movies and stuff. So there's like a lot of like, I don't participate in these activities you try to find friends that have the same values and stuff i couldn't listen to music with like screaming in it around my mom that was like a secret thing that i like did behind my parents back i was also when i was like starting when i was like 12 years old i like slept at friends houses more than i slept at my own house probably always sleeping over at friends houses person so i especially was able to just like not abide the rules that my parents my parents would have appreciated or whatever as far as things like that with music but and then when I was a missionary and when I went out to Utah and stuff just like over the period of those three years when I was like immersed in like really like the roots of Mormonism <laughs> being like in the culture and of the culture or whatever <laughs> it, it was just like hellacious and I just like couldn't handle it <laughs> also when I grew up it was less prevalent that people would like research things on the internet on Google and stuff so like when I went to the Mormon temple for the first time and stuff I like genuinely had no idea what they do in there and like now it's like there's like pictures and videos on YouTube and stuff. And I'm pretty sure if you grew up now, you probably like are aware of what goes on. I learned more about the histories of the church of like weird things about like Joseph Smith and stuff, too, because there's definitely like a heavy attitude in the church of like completely ignoring all of that information because people know that it like dissuades people and they think like the power of Satan's in it or something. And I, I assume it's still the same way now as it was 10 years ago or whatever. But uh, just be 
becoming acquainted with all that and just being part of the culture. There was a lot of things like when I was a missionary, more than half of the people I was a missionary with were uh, prescribed SSRI drugs while they were a missionary. Like they were diagnosed with like anxiety and depression problems as a missionary. And I was like, are we just going to like look past this right now, guys? Like, obviously, this is like uh, if you're doing something that makes people miserable (laughs) or like have like anxiety and depression problems induces it in like otherwise healthy people, then there's probably something wrong with your like (laughs) curriculum or whatever. As a missionary, though, you can see why it would happen because there's more rules for missionaries than there are for regular members of the church or whatever. Like while you're a missionary, um, at least when I was a missionary and I assume it's still the same, you like could only read, listen to or watch videos, books or music that had the church's logo stamped on it, like official church logo. You're only allowed to call your parents on Christmas and Mother's Day. Otherwise, you can email your immediate family on Mondays. Or if it's not your immediate family, you can only write them letters while you're a missionary. They separate you from the world as like a monk so that you'll be like focused on your like purpose of like knocking on doors and talking to people and like not communicate with friends and not be distracted while you're a missionary. You're only supposed to be in people's houses for like 45 minutes at a time and stuff. And you're not supposed to like hug the opposite gender. So just like being in that, not having any distractions and being supposed to focus on this thing when you're like 19 to 21 years old, it was just, I just saw people being miserable. It's weird that we're here since it seems like no one wants to be here. <laughs> like we're probably here because we're like indoctrinated or whatever. But anyways, I, I just started having those thoughts like while I was a missionary. Also, I didn't while I was a missionary, not not to seem uh, like too much of a hard ass or whatever, but I like didn't follow the uh, missionary. I didn't follow the rules, you know, bro. <laughs> I was a rebel, bro. I would like listen to whatever. I had like Tupac albums and, and stuff. I almost got sent home a few times because like one time I almost got sent home because I had watched like Fight Club with some people and uh, someone told their friend like, oh, the mission, these new missionaries are so cool. Like he like, they just like came over and just chilled and watched Fight Club and they're like, they did what? (laughs) And like reported me to our person or whatever. But the thing is, while I was a missionary and like because I was doing things like that, I would just like go to people's houses and like play Call of Duty with their kids for three hours and then like share scripture for like 15 minutes. I baptized a lot of people into the church or whatever. Like I don't think any of them are Mormon now because because I realized also that people would just get like socially integrated into like the church and then like that's who would get baptized or whatever. And then I was like, this is kind of discouraging that what I'm doing is like working (laughs) (laughs) because they specifically while you're a missionary, they're like the uh, the power of conversion is the Holy Spirit. And in order to have the Holy Spirit with you, you need, you need to be like exactly obedient to the commandments and rules that God has given you or whatever. Cause like the first thing to leave is the Holy Spirit when you're like not following the commandments of God or whatever, cause he can, they, he can't abide being in the Satan's company or whatever. <laughs> and then like, we're like not doing that. And uh, we're having more success. And I, I sort of like drifted into that throughout my mission. The first like year or so I was trying to like follow everything because I like had the, a big guilt complex, which took a really long time to get over. Only the last few years have I like not really had the guilt complex anymore. Damn, bro. But, uh, Where are you at yeah. now with your religion? Where I'm you very at? comfortable as a Buddhist, maybe agnostic slash Buddhist. I dig it. A materialistic, non-traditional Western Buddhist. Because to me, Buddhism and nihilism are kind of like the same concept, just like rephrased or recontextualized or something. <laughs> 
because <laughs> they both pretty much say that nothing in life matters and that you're just going to like renounce everything to an extent they have like a similar like foundational but i'm somewhere in that spectrum now and i'm i'm okay with it i dig that all right dude well i always like to ask singers especially pre-show warm-ups do, do you do anything special i do uh i stretch now and i do yoga stuff oh yeah it's like really subtle yoga thing. Mostly just stretch. Just because I feel like you don't have to warm up. <laughs> or no, I'll do a few little like like runs up or like yell up loud and go, oh, or like sing something for like a second or whatever, maybe sometimes just to like clear my throat and stuff. But uh, I feel like a lot of times when you start to sing bad live, it's just because you're tense and like not relaxed. And sometimes when you get focused or obsessed over the idea that you're like you got to have your throat viscosity feeling or your throat feeling just right or whatever or whatever people are thinking about with warming up it's like i guess you're like your cords all warmed up when you start worrying about that it makes you like worried whether your voice is feeling good or something right. when really in reality if you're like relaxed regardless because you'll start to tense up your shoulders a little bit and like or like you know just not be just because you're like thinking about singing and stuff and it's almost like i try not to think about anything ever which is really hard to do but i think that for sure you don't you don't have to think about things at all it's kind of like a mindful meditation uh parallel or something but if you just stay in a state of being relaxed and confronting the next moment with a relaxed posture and a, a subtle smile you know <laughs> you tend to know what the next move is like you don't actually solve problems by thinking about them the solutions to problems like occur to you <laughs> don't think about it it doesn't even really matter if you think about it i have a question on um, biggest challenge you've had to overcome as a musician i'd say probably performance anxiety i'm just someone who generally i wouldn't have naturally gravitated towards public speaking or anything you know <laughs> and i just like in general for like 10 to 15 minutes before we play shows is probably the most uncomfortable time for me that i ever experience in my life <laughs> up through the first like two songs i'll start or actually it's getting better though too that's a, something that time and playing a lot of shows will do it will change is how much you are anxious about it but the when, when we first started i was like i had to be like drunk playing music i i had to be like four drinks in at least or else i like wouldn't i i like would be too scared <laughs> which makes for an unhealthy tour when you don't get sleep too all right dude nathan what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself or just something to an up-and-coming musician the world is so rapidly changing that <laughs> i need advice you know i don't know if i should be giving anyone advice i don't know if i'm doing anything like particularly like the ideal way <laughs> i actually love that answer <laughs> like i was hoping you had some advice i don't know <laughs> I'm just kidding. dude i got nothing man i'm i'm here to learn all right well let's talk about your new music Hell yeah. We got the two new tracks, Circling the Drain and Straw Hat, both on Spotify streaming now. Working on more songs. A lot of songs really close to being finished. That'll be part of something. <laughs> Hopefully something that includes Circling the Drain and Straw Hat. Something like Purple, probably, because those are both purple. It seems like we got a theme going or something. And we're sort of just like figuring it out as we go. <laughs> You're awesome, man. I, uh, yeah, we could use advice probably. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> all right I'll, I'll try to round something up for you but i'm not making any, <laughs> no promises instagram microwave atl microwave atl i'll put the links to everything in okay, the so description we got tours in the fall some very exciting right. yet to be announced uh, yeah, shows exciting. in the fall very exciting yet to be announced shows in the fall for sure death is a warm blanket i definitely came home from the tour with that record it's incredible uh dude i know vomit is not on that record and it's an older song but i definitely need to tell you that you guys closed the set with that every single night on this tour and it never failed to just give me the biggest goosebumps ever just an epic song and thank you yeah dude thank you for the killer tunes and dude nathan hardy of microwave this has been an honor and it was an honor and a pleasure to be a part of that tour man and uh, i hope that uh, i see you on the road again very soon thank you thank you it's been a pleasure Let's wrap this one up, baby. Come out. Nathan Hardy of Microwave. Thank you so much. I told you it was going to be a killer episode. He's hilarious. He's great. He's a gentleman. And scholar. And a great musician. Mm -hmm. That Nathan Hardy, he's going places, I tell you. All right. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a single episode in the future. And check that backlog. I've had some killer guests in the past. Hit that subscribe button. And if you dig the podcast and you really want to help me out, best thing you can do is if you have an iPhone in particular, go to the little purple square that says podcasts. It's a podcast app. Hit me with a five-star written review. Super helpful. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an iPhone, though, no excuses. You know why? Go on Spotify. Go on Spotify and give me five stars. Yeah. All right. Until next time, I love you all. Peace. Peace.